0: Welcome to Integrated Brain Health. My name is Dr. Robert Coben. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist and am board certified in QEG technology and neuromodulation. This is our Neuroscience Rounds podcast. You will get a glimpse into our training programs where we talk about neuroscience, technology, neurofeedback, neuropsychology, and other related matters. We hope this helps with your knowledge base and ability to intervene and help patients successfully. On to the podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to NeuroRounds. Um, I'm Dr. Christy Snyder calling, and today we'll be talking about the limbic system. And we'll go into more detail specifically about the amygdala and the hypothalamus. So the limbic system is all these parts here in the the middle of the brain. Um, It has many functions um, of which are smell, learning and memory emotion, um, sexual behaviors, and feeding. The system has a lot of gray matter structures. So gray matter, as a reminder, are the cell bodies. White matter are the um, myelinated, myelinated tracks. Um, so a few of these gray matter structures um, are the limbic lobe, which goes around all the way. At the top, it has the cingulate gyrus. and At the bottom, it has the parahippocampal gyrus. Um, the cingulate gyrus is important for memory, emotion, and autonomic nervous system. And the parahippocampal gyrus is a part of the memory system. On um, the hippocampal formation, obviously, it is really important for memory. Um, it has a couple different components. The dentate gyrus uh, receives afferent information, so afferent is to the brain. The subiculum and the hippocampus proper are efferent, so they send information out. Oh, yes, I had pointed these out for you here. Um, We also have the amygdala, and that's really important for emotions and behavior. It also plays a role in smell. The hypothalamus, which we'll get to in more detail later. Um, The thalamus, which we talk about many times. Uh, It's kind of the relay center. Everything goes there first, and then it goes out to the rest of the brain, except for smell. And then we have the septal area and the hibernum, and those are part of the reward pathway. As I mentioned, the limbic system is important for olfaction. So we covered most of this when we had the olfaction lecture, but just to remind you, um, you smell, uh, a scent, a odorant, it goes up to the olfactory bulb, down the olfactory tract to the lateral olfactory stray. At that point it goes to the parahippocampal gyrus that gives you the memory of smells. And then you have, it goes to the amygdala, so you have the emotional response to smells. The limbic system is also really important for memory and learning. In particular, there's something called the Papez circuit. So it goes from the uh, subiculum and hippocampus up through the fornix, which is a white matter tract, to the mammillary bodies, which is the bottom of the hypothalamus, up to the thalamus, to the cingulate gyrus, that part there on top. At that part, uh, that point, it could split and go one of two directions. One direction is uh, back down to the parahippocampal gyrus, to the entorhinal cortex, back up to the hippocampus dentate, and back to the subiculum. So this is that circuit. Also, uh, once it gets to the cingulate cingulate gyrus, it can then part and go to the prefrontal cortex, which you know is important for all kinds of conscious uh, behaviors. So this is where you involve memories with your thoughts and decision-making. So you come to an experience, you're like, I remember doing that. Let me not make that decision. Let me do something else. So, um, of course, you can't talk about the hippocampus without talking about Mr. H.M. Um, He's a very uh, famous patient. So, um, he had a head trauma when he was very young and he had a lot of seizures. And so, to help cure him of his seizures, uh, Dr. William Scoville, in 1953, removed his hippocampus. And at the time, they just thought that the hippocampus, as part of the limbic system, it just played a role in emotions. They didn't know that it was really important for memory. Um, so what happened as a result of this sur- surgery is that the seizures did disappear, which is great. And there was no effect on his personality. He actually got, had a slight increase in IQ. All that's great. However, he lost the whole preceding decade of memory. And he was no longer able to form new memories. So every time the doctor came in or anything happened, it was all brand new to him. Um, what they found is a couple things. Um, he could remember things in the short term. So they say, hey, remember the sequence of numbers or letters? He could repeat them in his head, tell you that, but as soon as he told you that, five minutes later, he forgot you told him a list of numbers. So what this told um, us about memory is that there seems to be a distinction between short-term memory and long-term memory. So before this, they thought it was all the same thing. Um, So what they found is that the hippocampus seems to be necessary for memory consolidation. So you remember something happens and then you, it goes to the hippocampus and then it processes it, kind of it consolidates it, goes back up to the, to the cortex. Without the hippocampus you can't consolidate it and it's gone forever. They also found a really interesting thing about procedural uh, memory. So he didn't remember, like I said, anything declaratively. So this is the distinction between declarative memory and procedural uh, implicit memory. So but they had him do this experiment where he traced a star in a mirror and that's kind of a weird, awkward task. So at first he was kind of bad at it, but after successive days he got better and better at it. Even though he didn't remember doing this task ever before. Like, hey, have you done this before? No, but he got better and better at it. And so this is how they found that procedural memory, um, like riding your bike. Everyone always says you always remember how to ride a bike. So these things you can remember, and it has nothing to do with the hippocampus. They instead think that it relies more on the basal ganglia and the cerebellum it's the distinction between knowing what and knowing how. So it's unfortunate for Mr. H.M. but his um, case was really insightful for psychology and learning about how memory works. So this is an image of this brain. So this is a normal brain here. These regions here in the hippocampus and you can see in H.M.'s brain um, they were removed. They were kind of sucked out through a tube actually. <laughs> Okay, so now I'm going to spend uh, some time talking about the amygdala. So the amygdala, obviously you think amygdala, fear, and emotions. So fear, anger, sadness. Um, it also plays a role in feeding, so emotional eating. Uh, this is, plays a role in um, autonomic functions and also learning. Um, it plays a role in conditioning and also when you have to um, consolidate a lot of information from different sensory modalities and have a kind of an emotional response. So the amygdala receives information from all over the brain, uh, the prefrontal cortex, uh, the temporal lobe, smell and taste, the insula, which is visceral sensation, auditory association area, and the posterior association area, which is somatosensory, vision, and auditory information. It sends information out to the septal areas and the hypothalamus, uh, part of the autonomic nervous system. So um, this is a whole tract that starts in the hypothalamus and goes down, um, and it can affect your whole body. So for example, if you are afraid of something, if a big bear is out there, you're like, oh my goodness, what happens is your amygdala is is triggered, it talks to your hypothalamus, and then a lot of uh, autonomic things happen. For example, the liver increases glucose production, so you have more energy for your muscles to run away from the bear, hopefully. Hopefully you're not gonna fight it, but either way, you get more energy in the muscles. Um, It talks to your heart, so that you increase heart rate and blood flow. It increases blood pressure, uh, affects your lungs to increase your respiratory rates, and it also s- uh, stimulates the pituitary to release cortisol. So it is definitely your fight or flight. You're going to do something to avoid that bear. Um, an interesting case that they think might be related, related to the amygdala is Mr. Charles Whitman. Um, if you're not familiar with him, he was the Texas Tower sniper back in 1966. Um, so what he did first that morning is he went to his mother's house and killed her. Then he went back home and killed his wife. And then he went um, to the university and went up in the tower. And on his way up, he killed three people. And then when he was up at the top of the tower, um, he was a sniper and just started shooting a bunch of people. He ended up uh, killing 11 people and wounding 31 others. And somebody actually died 35 years after this as a result of their injuries. Um, so. You know, very uh, traumatic and tragic situation here. Um, but what happened is this happened in 1966. But 1965, he went to the doctors and said he had headaches and a lot of violent impulses. And they didn't do anything to help him. And so uh, in the morning before he went on his rampage, he wrote a suicide note. And he asked them to autopsy his brain um, after um, what he did that day. Because he thought something was wrong with them. And what happened is they found a tumor that was pressing on his amygdala. And so uh, they did not you know, say specifically that this is what caused it, but if you had something pressing on the amygdala and you're constantly angry and you have all those kind of emotions running, then it's quite possible that it was related to this. Uh, The amygdala also plays a role in innate fear and learned fear. So innate fear is kind of evolutionarily beneficial. So for example, rats are um, innately afraid of cat urine. Um, it's important for rats to not have seen a cat to know that cats are bad news for them. Um, so this is an innate fear that they don't have to learn. It's also part of learned fear. So if you play a tone to a rat, they're not afraid of that. But if you pair that tone with a shock, eventually just the tone itself will elicit an amygdala response. Um, it also plays a role in social justice. So this is a clip from a movie here. Um, If you have a lesion, um, usually people think that you're kind of naive and trusting. But if you have the amygdala, you're kind of more vigilant and you're kind of aware of fairness. So this was a kind of a fun video. I was going to play the video, uh, but it tends to not work here, so I just have a clip of it. So this is monkey A and monkey B. The task here is the researcher puts out their hand, the monkey gives them a rock. And so monkey A gives them a rock, and then the researcher gives them a cucumber slice. He's like, that's cool, thanks. And then monkey B does it, but monkey B gets a grape. And monkey A sees that monkey B gets a grape. And so then when he goes back to monkey B, he gives him a rock, and then he gets another cucumber slice. He's like, what's this business? And so eventually they keep on doing this, and eventually monkey A starts getting really, really enraged because that's not fair if he's doing the same task that monkey B is doing, that he's just getting a cucumber slice and not that tasty grape. So he can start seeing poor monkey A getting really angry about it. Um, And so they think that is uh, related to the amygdala. So um, since the amygdala does play a role in kind of social understanding, um, they think that it plays a role in autism. So um, what they found is if you have damage to the amygdala in a dominant monkey, what happens is that monkey quickly falls off the social hierarchy. People with damaged amygdalas um, have some social behaviors that are similar to autism. Uh, they don't look people in the eye and they have difficulty judging facial expressions as well. What they found in autistic individuals uh, based off of autopsy is that, um, well, not, sorry, this isn't part of autopsy, this is kind of brain imaging, um, but they found that it grows really fast in children, making it larger than the typical person in children. But then in adults, it stops growing and it even shrinks, so it's smaller than the typical. Um, and then they found that the amygdala has less activation when you're looking at faces in general but more activation when you're looking at eyes so eyes are really scary to people with autism what they found is that there's a weak connection between the amygdala and the hippocampus with that correlates with very severe autistic traits Um, and they also found the connection between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex is weaker in autistic individuals so they're less able to regulate their emotions the prefrontal cortex can't talk to the amygdala so that's what one of the things we're trying to do here is help the whole brain network, help the front talk to the emo- emotional back parts when we do neurofeedback here. Uh, the amygdala is also really important in developmental trauma. Um, so trauma is something that happens, with intense, uh, intense anxiety, uh, external event that you feel you can't control or defend against, um, when it happens in children. Um, there's significant structural and functional changes in the brain. Um, Specifically in the uh, sorry, the medial prefrontal cortex, anterior cingulate cortex, the hippocampus, and the amygdala. So the amygdala, again, mediates the acquisition of uh, conditioned fear and emotional memory. Again, if you have childhood trauma, they found increased amygdala volume. We found this, again, with the autistic. So if, in children, they're really afraid and really aware of what's going on. Interestingly, interestingly for adults, you find decreased amygdala vol- volume. And so what we found is there's an association, a correlation between reductions in the amygdala volume with adults who have PTSD, major depression disorder, and borderline personality disorder. Um, So also we found um, that excessive amygdala activity to emotional negative stimuli is associated with um, high trait anxiety, PTSD, and uh, major depression disorder. There's also a positive correlation between physical abuse and amygdala activity. Um, And then they find that this excessive amygdala activity is a mediator between childhood trauma and the development of trauma-related psychiatric disorders like PTSD and MDD. Um, Again, what's really important is not just the amygdala but its connection with other parts of the brain, such as the prefrontal cortex. Uh, Again, it's important for emotion regulation. so the prefrontal cortex can help you regulate the stress-induced fear and anxiety. Uh, that, so if you have a g- good connection, it'll help you to inhibit the amygdala activity. Um, so again, what we're trying to do here is help communicate that part of the brain so the front talks to the back and you're able to regulate when you when you're triggered for something. Okay, the hypothalamus. Um, a lot's going on in the ha- hypothalamus. Um, basically, if I had to say one thing, the hypothalamus is important for homeostasis. So how do you keep it neutral? Um, it kind of converts neur- uh, neural information to hormonal information. It also acts on the uh, central nervous system. So sometimes the effects are really fast. Sometimes it's really slow to kind of keep you, again, uh, net neutral. It's part of the auto- autonomic nervous system. So the sympathetic system. Auto- the autonomic can The autonomic nervous system has two parts, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. The sympathetic is your fight or flight, and the parasympathetic is your rest and digest. Um, so what's interesting about these is that basically the neural system uh, is helps co- to control with motivation. So motivation and goal-directed activity. So a stimulus happens and you have different responses based on what's happening internally. So the hypothalamus is important for that. Um, It can affect the environment both directly and indirectly. So uh, the direct route would be through the endocrine system and the autonomic nervous system. So if it's cold, then you will have uh, vasoconstriction. You'll want to bring blood away from the skin. And if it's hot, then it will do opposite, it will dilate, bring the blood to the surface so you can sweat or so you can evaporate the uh, heat out. The indirect route would be through motivating your behaviors. So if it's cold, you'll close a window, turn the heat on hot, you'll turn the heat down. So the hypothalamus has a lot of different nuclei, so we'll kind of go through some of these different nuclei and talk about their roles. One is the uh, arcuate nucleus, Nucleus. And this is, um, has a lot of releasing and inhibiting factors into the pituitary. So the pituitary would be kind of right here. This is anterior, posterior, sorry, uh, pituitary is here. Um, so what happens is the, the hypothalamus can say, hey, release more or less uh, growth hormone. Um, also it has the cortisol precursor, so it can release more or less uh, cortisol when you're stressed. Uh, prolactin and also thyroid hormone. Uh, the medial preoptic nucleus, just over here, has different roles in, uh, in women and men. So for women, um, it has the follicle stimulating hormone and also the luteinizing hormone for women. The follicle stimulating hormone is important for estrogen production. For men, it's important for sperm production. The luteinizing hormone for women is important for progesterone, so that helps prepare the uterus for implantation and the development of the placenta. Uh, For men, it helps to produce uh, testosterone. It also plays a role in temperature regulation, so depending on whether you stimulate it or inhibit it, it can help you to help animals to pant um, or shiver. <clears throat> and they think it also might play a role in fever. So uh, your body temperature has a set point that your body tries to maintain, but when you're sick it will change that set point so that you'll have higher temperature so you can kind of burn off that uh, fever or the, uh, whatever is uh, making you sick. Uh, uh, nucleus, Paraventricular nucleus this releases oxytocin, which, again, has different effects in men and women. So in women, uh, it plays a role in breastfeeding and milk ejection. So when the baby suckles, it will then cause the milk to be released. It also communicates to higher centers, so even the sight or the sound of baby crying might cause milk to be released. Um, however, stress inhibits milk release. Um, it also plays a role in uterine stretch. So when you're in labor and your uterine is stretching, it will help to... Uh, the uterine to contract and get the baby out. Um, in men, it plays a role in sexual drive, orgasm, and gets the blood flowing places where it needs to be flowing. Um, the supraoptic nucleus is important for water balance. So, this is, uh, has to do with your uh, kidneys releasing and reabsorbing water. So, if you have decreased water and increased solutes in the blood, then it will release vasopressin. Vasopressin acts in the blood vessels and it constricts to increase blood pressure. It also tells the kidneys to increase water reabsorption. So then you'll urinate less because you want to keep the water in. Um, Cold inhibits vasopressin, so you'll urinate more when you're cold than when you're hot. It stimulates it, so you want to conserve water because you'll probably be sweating that out. Um, They also think that vasopressin might uh, be linked to counteracting fevers. Um, so if it gets too high, maybe vasopressin might play a role. Um, also, uh, if it gets too high, then you might have a convulsion or a seizure. And that, they think that is related to vasopressin as well. Superchiasmatic nucleus um, is really important for the circadian rhythm. So the optic chiasm right is where the optic nerve crosses as it goes back. So this re- is where you receive light information. So light hits the retina, goes to the optic nerve. Retino-hypothalamic tract, pineal gland. What happens is if it's dark, it will help release melatonin, which helps you go to sleep. Um, also, um, they think that something in this, uh, in this network, uh, some people when they see really bright light, it makes them sneeze, that's me. Um, and they think it has to do with this kind of pathway here. Um, anterior hypothalamic nucleus, so we're moving from the endocrine to the autonomic nervous system. Um, this nucleus has to do with the parasympathetic um, system. So this is your rest and digest. You're trying to slow down and chill. Um, it sends information down to in the brainstem and affects a couple cranial nerves, as we talked about, I think last week. Uh, cranial nerve 3, which deals with pupillary constriction. Cranial nerves 7 and 9, which does salivation. So if you're digesting and you're eating, you want to make sure you're salivating. It also affects cranial nerve 10, which is the vagus nerve. It also goes down to the spinal cord uh, and affects S2 to S4. Also the reticular formation which is, has to do with arousal. Uh, they also think that this has to do with uh, thermoregulation. Again, you're resting and digesting, you wanna cool your body down. So you wanna decrease the body temperature. To do this, you'll have vasodilation which again brings the blood close to the uh, surface to radiate heat. It also stimulates the sweat glands for evaporative cooling. Uh, the posterior hypothalamic nucleus, which is part of the sympathetic nerve system. This is your fight or flight. It does all of the opposite um, effects. Uh, and it goes to uh, sends information down to T1 to L2 in the spinal cord. And again, for thermal re- regulation, it does the opposite. It wants to warm you up, get you ready to, to fight or run away. Uh, it does vasoconstriction, so it brings blood away from the skin and into the internal organs. It also helps you to shiver to generate heat. Um, the hypothalamus also plays a role in feeding behavior, and there's two nuclei that are important for this. So you have the ventromedial nucleus that helps uh, with satiety, so this helps you feel satiated when you eat. If this area is damaged, then you'll it'll lead to obesity because you never feel satisfied. The lateral hypothalamic nucleus um, is the hunger center. So um, if this is damaged, they think that this has two kind of implications. And infants, if this part of the hypothalamus isn't working, they'll have what's called failure to to thrive, where they just won't eat, and they'll be really small, and it's very sad. Um, And adults, they think this might be linked to anorexia. Um, But it's not just the brain. There's a lot of um, parts of the digestive system that also work to communicate with the hypothalamus to kind of mediate whether you're hungry or uh, satisfied. In particular, you get the adipose tissue, so your fat cells. So... If you eat and you get more fat put into those fat cells, then it releases a hormone called leptin. Leptin stimulates the uh, the ventromedial nucleus and inhibits the lateral hypothalamic nucleus. So again, it tells you that you're satiated, stop eating, and you're not hungry anymore. Also the pancreas, whenever you eat and there's high glucose levels, then that uh, produces insulin. Same effect. Tells you that you're more satisfied, stop eating, and less hungry. In the GI tract, when there's food in your intestines, it distends your intestines. Um, This triggers the vagus nerve, which talks to the hypothalamus. Same effect. You're satisfied, not hungry. It tells you to stop eating. On the other hand, if you've been fasting for a while and your stomach's like, feed me, it will release uh, what's called ghrelin which has the opposite effect. So it will inhibit the ventromedial nucleus and then it will um, stimulate the lateral hypothalamic nucleus. Um, I also want to talk uh, about the addiction cycle for drug addiction. Um, it could be because the limbic system does play a role in this. Um, there's three stages to the addiction cycle. One is the binge or intoxication um, stage. So this is where you're actually actively consuming the substance. Then you experience a very, kind of, pleasurable reward from that. Um, They think this has to do with the basal ganglia, which plays a role in reward and pleasure. There's a lot of dopamine going on in the basal ganglia, as we discussed. And this plays a role in the habit formation. So what this does is it helps to associate um, stimulus and response. So it will help you to associate all kinds of things, like the people, places, and drug paraphernalia, with that euphoria that you felt. And so seeing uh, those people or places or things will then kind of trigger you to want the drug. Um, okay, I said it has to do with release of dopamine, also glutamate, which is a very excitatory neurotransmitter to make you actively go do things. Um, it also affects the dorsal striatum, which plays a role in habit formation and routine behaviors. Now the second stage is what has to do with the limbic system. So this is withdrawal or negative affect. So after you've had your high or whatever, um, after a a moment of abstinence, which for really addicted people people might just be a couple hours, um, you start to have kind of this increased level of stress. And, um, And also whenever you start taking drugs, you need more and more drugs to have that same effect. And if you're not having the same effect, that causes more stress. And the more stress you have makes you want the drug more. So, what happens is stress is released. Um, So, stress, this makes you release more cortisol, norepinephrine, and what they find is if you block these stress hormones, then you have less seeking behavior. So, stress really does play an active role in the seeking behavior for these um, drugs. Again, the amygdala is important for stress and emotions. So, uh, whenever you have this reduced sensitivity, you're really stressed out, that's the amygdala. And the hypothalamus, which releases all these stress hormones, plays a role. Um, the third stage is where you're like craving and you're preoccupied with finding the drug. Um, like I said, you'll want this even if after a couple hours. If you're very addicted, um, the part of the brain important for this is the prefrontal cortex. So again, the prefrontal cortex is executive function to help you inhibit um, behaviors that you know, shouldn't be happening. So if this part of the brain is there's a poor connection, then you're not able to regulate your emotions and actions. Um, They found that you can predict shorter relapse time by looking at the volume of the prefrontal cortex. Um, So if you have reduced volume of the prefrontal cortex, less control over the amygdala and everything else, you're more likely to relapse. Okay. Two more things uh, to—two more syndromes to talk Uh, about—Kluver-Busey syndrome. So this happens when you have bilateral damage to the amygdala. Uh, Basically, you have placidity, so there's no reaction to fear or anger. You're just kind of chilling all the time. Um, Also, hyperphagia, so you'll be overeating all the time. Um, You'll have hypersexual behaviors and even amnesia uh, if if the the hippocampus is um, also damaged. Also, there's a B1 deficiency, um, which damages the mammillary bodies um, on the hypothalamus. And this is what um, what happens, you have confabulation. So they'll have a memory, but the memory will have like holes in it and they'll just make something up very vividly, even though that didn't happen at all. Um, also, there's at- ataxia and um, they'll have trouble controlling your eye muscles as well. Okay, so a lot of information to cover, but that has been the limbic system.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to subscribe to the Neuroscience Realms podcast future episodes. You might also enjoy our sister podcast, Let's Head On, with myself and Dr. Ann Stevens, where we discuss the interaction between neuroscience, neuropsychology, and physical and mental well-being. Please feel free to reach out to us at integratebrainhealth.com.